Good, good morning. And thank you again, praise team, for leading, leading us in that worship. And I only have one thing to say about that triathlon is I think I can beat my time next year. <laughs> Pretty sure I can do that. So, uh, no, but it'll, it'll be fun. I'll look forward to doing that with you guys again next year. Uh, well, if you'll turn with me to Revelation chapter 17. We have been uh, studying the, the, the last days, looking at, at the, the prophetic history of the future that's yet to come. And while you're turning there, let me just ask you this. Have you noticed that in, in our culture right now, it seems like there's a lot of cultural pressure to start looking for areas in which you have an agreement with somebody and things that you have in common so that you can overlook all of the differences just to, to be more and more united. Have you, have you noticed that? In our culture, there's this, uh, this idea that uh, you know, maybe religions should even... Uh, start focusing more on what we have in common with each other, with other religions, instead of focusing on the, on the things that separate us and divide us. And it's a, it's, a, it's a difficult issue to think through because in a lot of ways, they're right. In a lot of ways, we shouldn't, we shouldn't let small differences between us separate us. For example, if a new neighbor comes in and he comes from a country uh, that you don't, you've never heard of, it's going to have some different traditions, some different things going on. And we should look, overlook those things and build relationships, right? But when it comes to religion, and you, you think through, well, wait a minute. Are there some differences that we shouldn't overlook? Are there some, the, some dangers in trying to just look at the things that we have in common instead of looking at the differences? Because sometimes small differences are actually big differences, too. Does that make sense? It reminds me of a joke. Can you humor me? Let, me? let me tell a joke this morning. There's two chemists who walk into a bar. I know what pastor tells a joke where people walk into a bar, but just trust me. All right. Two chemists walk into a bar, and, and, and uh, the bartender says to the first, well, what, what do you have to drink? And he says, today I just want H2O, a typical chemist response. He says, and how about you? He says to the, uh, to the second chemist. He says, I'll have an H2O too. And he died. <laughs> now, how many, some of you are like, I don't get it. How many of you get it, right? So H2O is water. And so the, mis the obvious mistake here was he said, I'll have H2O2, and he, he mistook the T-O-O -O for T-W-O. And so what is H2O2? Hydrogen peroxide, exactly. So sometimes those little differences can make a big difference, right? And I, I drank water this morning. I did not drink hydrogen peroxide because of that difference, right? why I'm still here. And so I think we have to think through what should we overlook, what shouldn't we overlook, and in Revelation chapter 17 gives us some clues on some things that we really can't overlook, some differences that we really can't overlook between what we believe of the truth and what, what some of the other religions have been teaching and will be teaching in the last days. So let's take, turn to chapter 17. We'll look at at uh, the, first, the first verses there. Uh, just a reminder where we're at so far. We've, we've seen the seven seals. The seventh seal became seven trumpets of God's wrath. The seventh trumpet became seven bowls. And then last week we hit the, the last two trumpets. Uh, or last two bowls, excuse me. The, the number six was to, to dry up the Euphrates River, allowing the kings of the east to come in against God's people. And then the seventh one was this great earthquake. Now we come to chapter 17 and 18, 
And we're actually going to look at those. It zooms in on those two chapters and gives a detailed account of those last two bowls. So with that in mind, let's start in verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, um, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Verse 4, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of all harlots and of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with, the, lion, with the, the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. Well, we get this image that, that John sees, this angel takes him and he gives him this, this image of something very unique, something very different. And, and, and uh, you can easily look at it and not be sure what's going on here. And, uh, but there's some, some clues in here that I think are very interesting and very important. First, we, we're introduced to this new character, this, this great harlot who sits on many waters. This great harlot who sits on many waters. First of all, who is this great harlot? And what is this all about? And I think there are some clues in here. First of all, just the fact that she's called the great harlot. The word harlot is, means a prostitution or a temptress, right? So it's the idea of a harlot is, is uh, one of someone who is either a prostitute. So you guys know what I'm talking about. I, don't, I know he still has some young years in here, but I think you know what I'm, I'm talking about there. And, and then the idea of the temptress is that same concept there of, of someone who is opposite of what is a, a wife. And what I think is int interesting here is really all through Scripture when you look at the, the, the comparison between a harlot and a wife because both of them promise some things in common but there is some key differences that make one legitimate and one not legitimate. Does that make sense? And so there are some things in, in common, things that are not in common and it's those differences that make... Uh, Make, make all the differences. In fact, if I would encourage you to sometime read the My Son speeches of, of Proverbs 1 through 9. And it's wisdom passed down from a father to a son, which is very cool because my father's here today. And, and so to, that, that wisdom that's, that's passed down from father to son, in all throughout those nine chapters, wisdom is compared to a beautiful, a good wife, whereas folly and foolishness is compared to the temptress or the harlot. Right? And you see that all through Scripture, that the idea, one is the real deal, one is a complete counterfeit. And so this, is, this great harlot, what does that mean? It's, it's a counterfeit, someone who promises some things in common, but at the same time uh, is actually just a counterfeit. And it goes on to say that, that this great harlot sits on many waters. Uh, so I don't think this has anything to do with her buoyancy or anything like that. But in context, as we look at, at all, of the, all of the things that in the book of Revelation so far, in these prophetic images, the seas represented the nations, right? And so the idea that she sits on, on many waters shows that there is an influence that has gone out to multiple nations. And so she sits on many waters. 
I think the idea here, when we're talking about this, this about Babylon here, this this empire that's that uh, we'll get into a little bit more in a few moments here, but but Babylon then will become this political and religious head of of many uh, and potentially all Gentile nations. And when you think about that, that that, that where the world is moving towards one government, and that this that it will be based in the nation of Babylon, which by the way is Iran of today. Um, there, there will be a political and religious head to all of this. And, and this great harlot is going to have influence in all of that. It goes on to describe her. Look back at verse 2. With whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So here twice we see this idea in the same sentence about this idea of fornication. Just a little background, the word fornication doesn't just mean uh, sex before marriage. The word here in Greek, pornea, actually means any kind of perverted, any kind of perverted sex. So whether it's adultery, whether it's, it's sex before marriage, whether it's uh, any type, any perversion. So if it's not marital sexual relationship, it's considered pornea or, or what we find here, fornication. And, uh, and so it really this word is popping up so many times in this context because of the analogy of the harlot. So you've got this analogy of the harlot, and, and here, now, the kings of the earth commit fornication with the harlot. In other words, they, they are not being faithful to their king, and they're now, they're now committing themselves simply for the sake of some type of indulgence with this new empire. By the way, who's the king of kings? Jesus is the king of kings. Jesus is the legitimate king, right? And so when any nation says we're going to re- reject Jesus as the king, then, and they start uh, uh, pulling together with this new religious order, guess what? That's fornication. That's committing adultery against God. Does that make sense? And so you, you, you put this together and you recognize um, this idea of fornication. The idea now is that this uh, this this harlot who's riding the scarlet beast will bribe the nations with a counterfeit and religious ideology. And for now, I'm going to call this the, the, the satanic counterfeit order. I, I picked that name carefully because, um, because that's the three clues that we have. First of all, we know it's satanic because what is the harlot riding? The beast. And we'll talk in a few moments. That beast is who? It's Satan. Counterfeit because she's the harlot, right? She's the counterfeit wife. She's not the, she's not the legitimate wife. And I call it the, the order because it's going to affect the, and influence the kings. And there's a focus on that, that this, she's going to have influence over these kings. So this is a satanic counterfeit order. And if it's a counterfeit, what's it a counterfeit of? It's a counterfeit of the kingdom of God. And so this is, this is a counterfeit to the kingdom of God. And when you think of it, of these two, and the metaphor for the kingdom of God all through scripture is that, that of, a, of a husband and a wife. In fact, God uses the analogy that he is the husband of Israel and Israel is the wife, right? What happens when you go to the, get to the New Testament? Who's the husband of the church? Jesus Christ. And so he continuously uses that analogy of, of, of that marital relationship but now we have a completely different analogy, and we have the, the metaphor for, for this counterfeit order is the metaphor of a harlot. And so this idea, by the way, the fact that it uses the word fornication multiple times could also, not just be a metaphor, but could also ta- be talking about some type of, of 
of permitting of all sorts of sexual perversion and, and, and behaviors. That would not surprise me as well, especially when you look at the direction that our culture is moving, right? And, and you see that there's a strong connection between satanic forces, satanic things going on, and sexual perversion as well. Let's look at verse 3. So, so he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Now, where have we heard that before? All of those things. In fact, where have we heard a description of one beast as being scarlet or red, right? And also, names were full of blasphemy and having seven heads and ten horns. We've heard that multiple times together. And, and in fact, uh, just to name a couple, in chapter 12, verse 3, this was the descri this description of the fiery red dragon. It has all three of those elements in it. Uh, in chapter 13, the description of the beast of the sea, which was the political arm of Satan, right? And, and so and we find that the seven kings and the, and the ten nations under their rule are represented by the seven heads and the ten, the, and ten horns. So... Who's the beast that the harlot is right? It's Satan, right? It's without a doubt. It's Satan. The harlot is riding the beast of Satan. Look at verse 4, and this will tell you a little bit something about this order. Look at verse 4. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. Let's break this down for a moment. First, arrayed in purple and scarlet. That's significant, folks. That is very significant. All three, the, the Old Testament, purple and scarlet were put together where? In the temple. Right? This was, this was all of the colors. When you look at, and you look at the directions of how to build the, build the temple, actually going even further back to the tabernacle, which was the tent version of the temple. And you go back to that. It's all about purple and scarlet, purple and scarlet. So don't, don't, don't just uh, read through those directions real quickly. Read them, right? A lot of people skip over those portions of Scripture. Read them. You find it's mentioned in there multiple times. Why? Because those, those have a, 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 an importance in God's plan for actual redemption. And they have significance. Guess what? She's clothed that way. What does that mean? Giving on the appearance of being that. In other words, this new religious order is going to give the appearance that they are actually the fulfillment of all of the stuff of the temple, all that Old Testament stuff. In other words, it's not going to be some new religion that just starts out. It's going to be a corruption of the truth. Does that make sense? And there are a lot of religions out there that have no connection to Christianity, no connection to the Judeo-Christian stuff at all. I don't think that's the case with this one because it's going to be clothed in purple and scarlet. There's going to be connections to the temple and the ideas of the temple. It goes on to say that it's adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. Um, I believe that, especially in context as we get into chapter 18, I think we're talking about materialism and the idea it's going to be wealthy. There's going to be a lot of money behind it. Also, the golden cup full of abominations. The golden cup full of abominations. What's that talking about? I believe that, that when, you, when you look at how God uses the word abomination, it's when there is a, 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 a grievous violation 
of, of some of his commands. Specifically, if you're, if you're taking the context of the temple, specifically of the Levitical code. In fact, if you go back to, uh, to, the, to the book of Daniel, when, when it predicts the first Antichrist, remember Antiochus Epiphanes? What was called the abomination that causes desolation that was placed in the temple when they offered a pig in place of a lamb? And by the way, that was a sign that things were about to get bad. And they did. And Israel endured its first of many holocausts. So I believe that this religion is going to violate the Levitical code, even though it claims to be in line with it. It will probably sacrifice some unclean animals on the altar. It goes on to say, and the filthiness of her fornication. I believe that this world order will allow, in fact, I would say permit and even promote sexual perversions. And that does not surprise us when we look at the world around us. So who is this? I mean, would you like to know the name of this organization, right? This order, the satanic counterfeit order? Well, actually, we can. Look at verse 5. And on her forehead, a name was written. And uh, I'm not sure why all of the... It has a, a little mess ups there on the screen, but, uh, but let's look at, look at this. It says, and on her forehead, a name was written. Mystery. Babylon the Great. The mother of harlots and, the, and of the abominations of the earth. Let's take a look at these four names that's given. First one there is mystery. Right? Mystery. What does that mean? Mystery, it, it comes from the root word which means to uncover. And the idea is that something is kept hidden and then at a later time it is revealed, it is uncovered. That's what a mystery means. And it's, the idea is that it's a fulfillment of prophecy. Right? So this is actually a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Well, who, pro- who prophesied about this? I'll give you a clue. We just studied that book not that long ago. Remember Daniel? Remember when Daniel prophesied about this? In fact, if you go back to Daniel chapter 2, we, he has this prophecies about these future, uh, these future empires. And, and it, it comes in the form of this statue. And you have this head of gold. And then you have the arms and chest are made of silver. And then you have the, the belly and the bronze. Or, or excuse me, belly and the thighs are made of bronze. And then you had iron legs. And in this one, it actually gives a, a, a little bit more insight as it talks about the feet with the ten toes made out of iron and clay. In Daniel chapter 7, we, we read about this lion, right, and the, this beast. And then you find this bear that, was, that had two sides to it, and one side was larger than the other. And then this four-headed leopard as well, and then you have this, this um, dreaded beast, this dreadful beast that, that had ten horns as well. And, uh, and so you have this beast with iron teeth and ten horns. Well, then what did you have in history? You had Babylon come in at the beginning, the first of those nations to persecute the Jews. Then, then you had the Medo-Persian Empire, right? And the two sides represented by that. And you see the parallel nature between these. And then you had Greece uh, with the foreheaded. I mean, they didn't even predict it to the details of Alexander the Great who, who divvied up his kingdom into four. I mean, it's amazing stuff, written hundreds of years before it happened. And then we had Rome. Remember Rome? And we had this Rome, and, and uh, the idea, though, it's interesting, though, that Rome did not fulfill all of the prophecies of Daniel 7 yet, and the clues go back to the fact that we still have this revived idea, maybe a, a, a revived Roman Empire, because the feet 
carry iron, but it's not just iron, it's also clay. What does that represent? And I believe that what we're finding, to, what we'll find out today is that it's going to include some of the desert nations as a part of this empire as well. Now, what, <clears throat> where do we go from here? This harlot, this counterfeit order, right, is the fulfillment of the prophecies of Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. And this is exactly what we read about back in, in Daniel, written hundreds of years before Christ was even on the earth. And yet, now we, we find that this is what's happening in the future. And so when you look, we put this all together, it's interesting to see you've got, uh, you've got really a, a rebirth of all of these nations coming back together. And uh, they're all persecutors of God's people. They are all manifestations of Satan, who is the real enemy. And they all focus on persecuting Christians and Jews. And so here we have this Satan's final counterfeit order. And it's called also Babylon the Great. Babylon the Great. So Babylon, I think, which is also represented by the clay and the vision, uh, will join forces with other nations against God's people with a final attempt to annihilate them all. You know, Ezekiel wrote a prophecy about, about this. And in fact, in, in, a, in, a, in a prophecy against Babylon, it's called the fall of Babylon. In Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, here's, what, here's how it begins. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog in the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and, prophesy, and prophesy against him. So he, when he's talking about the fall of Babylon, he starts to describe, well, wh what land does this include? And he, and he starts talking about these, and, and well, where are these places? You know, and some people tend to interpret it in light of what's going on at the time. And I remember when, when uh, Russia seemed to be the major threat against the United States, everyone ran for that. So, well, Rosh must mean Russia and Meshach, Moscow, or whatever. I don't know about that, but I know that when you do a little research, those are actual people, and, and, uh, and they actually are fr uh, from, um, they're actually from the land of Turkey, what is present-day Turkey, to the north of Israel. And who else joins them? In fact, it goes on to say, look at verse 4. It says, I will turn you around, put hooks into your jaws, and lead you out with all your army, horses and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Verse 5, Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya are with them. Follow this with me. All of them with shield and helmet. Gomer and all its troops, the house of Togarma from the far north and all of its troops. Many people are with you. So who joins Babylon? When you look at, at this, Babylon is, the, is directly east of Israel, and you might remember where the, the, you can see the Euphrates River that would block them. The Euphrates River also blocked people coming down from Turkey, like when the Assyrians would oftentimes come and attack. Uh, but that is modern day Iran. That's where that is right now. Who else is joining them? Persia, uh, it says, which is in Iran. You have Ethiopia, which the Ethiopia in the Bible actually covers all of what today is the Sudan and Ethiopia. It um, goes on to say Libya. Where's Libya? North Africa. Uh, where's Gomer? Gomer is also in the uh, northwest side of, of Turkey. And then the, to the north of Turkey, would you, you'd have uh, to, uh, Togor, Togarma. I can't speak this morning. 
uh, to Garma. So you, you have this feder confederation of all of these nations here. But I, what's interesting is that Babylon will be a confederation of these Arabic nations. And so a lot of times I think we tend to think in terms of the United States and we have this very United States-centric idea of eschatology, but, but we have to understand the scripture from, the, from where they're at. And, and when he starts listing the names of these people who will be in this final fall of Babylon, these nations are highly involved. By the way, do you know what religious and political entity drives all of these nations today? We'll talk about that in a few moments. Let's, look at this, let's look, continue to look at some of the names here. She's called, Babylon the Great is called the mother of harlots. In other words, a counterfeit of counterfeits. I mean, this is going to be the counterfeit of counterfeits. She goes from nation to nation, tempting them with a counterfeit religious and political system. She's also called the mother of the abominations of the earth. She's going to commit great acts of sacrilege. Like we saw earlier, this religion is going to violate the Levitical Code even though it's going to claim to be in line with it. And remember when that happened with the first Antichrist, things went from peace to persecution really fast. We're going to see that as well in just a few moments. Verse 6. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, and, and when I saw her, I marveled in great amazement. She looked at this and said, wow, this is amazing. <coughs> Just at the, the hatred. It's interesting. The blood of the saints, Old Testament, and the martyrs of Jesus, New Testament. Going after God's people from either Testament. So in the end, there will be a global political and religious empire. It's going to be a counterfeit to the kingdom of God. It's going to be headed up by Satan. Satan's behind it all. He's the puppeteer behind it all. It's going to come in the name of peace, but it's actually going to be, bring violence towards God's people. And the focus will be on the Jews and on Christians. And it will be based on the land east of Israel, but it will encompass most of what today we would consider the Arabic nations. I would submit to you today that the religion behind this, this harlot is Islam. It is Islam. Well, why do I say that? Islam is the counterfeit that claims to have its roots in Judeo-Christianity. And you, Buddhism doesn't do that, and uh, you know, Hinduism doesn't. But they claim to have the roots. They have tried to hijack our faith since, since the days of Abraham and Isaac and Ishmael, right? I mean, if you go back in time, you go back to Abraham, and, and um, who they would consider the father of their religion too, right? He's the, considered the father of all three monotheistic religions in the world. Abraham, if you remember, God made him a promise that he was going to have a nation that he was going to bless and he was going to bring the Messiah through, the, through this uh, blessed line. And someone convinced Abraham to try it a different way. Not with his wife, but with a temptress, a harlot, someone, uh, someone that is not his wife. And what was the result of that? Ishmael. God gets a hold of him in an act of faith even though his wife was old and he was old, in an act of faith, God produces Isaac. God clearly blessed, I know it's a Facebook-like sign, but that's the best I can come up with. God <laughs> blessed the line of, of Isaac, not the line of Ishmael. Right? You know, that's, so what is it? Ishmael is the counterfeit. 
Isaac, so to speak. But that's not where it ends. I mean, you follow Isaac's line and, and you eventually end up with the 12 tribes of Israel, the blessed people of God. They were the, the people that God used to bring in uh, the Messiah. That's, that's the, the nature of it. Um, but then you follow Ishmael's line and you have the 12 princes of, of, of the Arabic nations. The 12 princes of Arabia be, be, began the Arab, Arabic nations. Now, since then, some have divided, some have they've conquered nations, so it's not a fixed number anymore. Uh, but at the beginning, if you read in the scriptures, there were, there were the 12 princes that began the Arabic nations. Um, what's interesting is the line of Ishmael had the Pentateuch, and they said, we don't like this book. We don't like the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They got this. We don't like that. We want to be the blessed ones. So you know what they did? They, re- they wrote their own Pentateuch. It's called the Samaritan Pentateuch. Came years after, of course, Samaritan Pentateuch. And in the Samaritan Pentateuch, everything is the same, except God blesses the line of Ishmael and not the line of Isaac. Let's put ourselves in. It's the perfect counterfeit. And that was the beginning. Fast forward to 570 AD, a political ruler named Muhammad claims to be the Messiah of the Old Testament. He claims to be their Messiah. He borrowed from pagan religion practices, incorporated whatever he could for those. He was a political leader. He would, he would, he would get whatever religion, he would, he would take something from their religion, incorporate it into the religion that he was creating. Uh, that's where, for example, the, the genie, you've heard of genies and the, like the Knights of Arabia, or the, the Arabian Knights. Um, so he included, the, it's called the jinn, that's the angels of his, of his religion. And he incorporates whatever he could so that people, and they would accept him, most of them, but when the Jews would not accept him as their Messiah, he annihilated all three sects of Jews under his jurisdiction, wiped them out, took them off the the face of of the planet. By the way, he named the religion, and he named it Islam. You know what Islam means in Arabic? It means the way of peace. It has the same root as the, 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 the Hebrew word for peace, shalom. Salam, Islam is the way of peace. However, promises peace. But what does the Bible say is going to happen in the end? Promise peace, but bring persecution. He also teaches the, the, the doctrine of jihad, which is the holy war against infidels. And we, we, find, we find all these things are lining up perfectly with with what the Bible says. By the way, this false religion is also both political and religious. It's not just a religion. It is a a political entity as well. And guess what? It encompasses every single one of those nations that are mentioned are going to be there in the fall of Babylon. All of them today are being run by an an Islamic political government. You say, well, Pastor Dave, why is all of this important? Right? Why is this important? Jesus told us why. Remember, you don't have to turn there, but remember what Jesus said in Matthew 24. He says, then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Jesus was saying, you need to be doctrinally prepared for this religion, because if you're not doctrinally prepared for this religion, you're going to get duped into it. 
We ought to take that seriously, don't you? This is your Lord and Savior telling you this. You've got to be very careful. So I say the answer is very simple. We don't want to get duped. I believe that Revelation 17, 1 through 6 was written so that we would recognize Islam for what it is. It's the, the great counterfeit. It isn't the bride of Christ. It is the harlot of the beast. And we have to recognize that. There's a difference between H2O and H2O2. Even if the same elements are involved, one is a counterfeit and it is deadly. It's interesting to me, the Catholic Church, Catholic Church, uh, in, on their sites, on catholic.com, you can look it up, and they're answering the question, can a devout Muslim go to heaven? They write this, to deny Jesus, which a grave matter with full knowledge and deliberate consent is to incur the guilt of mortal sin. And it refers to their catechism. And to die with such uh, guilt um, is to merit eternal separation from God in hell. Um, um, I went too far, didn't I? Sorry about that. To not, uh, there we go. And there we are. Into, uh, to hell. Then it goes on to say, we don't know if a person truly has full knowledge of what he is denying. He may have it in his mind some idea of Jesus and Christianity that we would reject as well. I'm sorry, I should just read it off the screen. I've got it wrong on here. Okay, so, this doesn't mean, however, that every person who verbally denies the truth of Christianity, such as a Muslim, is going to hell. So wait a second. Isn't that the opposite of what they just said? It goes on to say, we don't know if a person truly has full knowledge of what he's denying. He may have in his mind some idea of Jesus and Christianity that we would reject as well. Moreover, we can't even know if a person has full deliberate consent. There may be mitigating factors that lessen his culpability and thus reduce his verbal denial of Christ to venial guilt. Let me interpret that for you in, in Catholic ease. Right? That means you can say a few Hail Marys or spend, do, do, say a few Hail Marys in pur purgatory and you, you'll end up in heaven still. These are the small sins. Right? The ones that don't matter that much. That's, first of all, that shows there's a lot of problems with the Catholic doctrine. But here you have the largest religious institution that's called Christian saying, well, Muslims can go to heaven too. Say, well, Pastor Dave, those are, those are Catholics. Here's, uh, here's a quote from Dr. James White, director of Alpha and Omega Ministries. He says in their, their statement of faith, first thing that says, we believe the Bible to be uh, the written revelation of God, complete and sufficient in all aspects. Anyone agree with that? We believe the scriptures to be God-breathed and therefore fully authoritative in all of themselves. They rely for their authority upon no church, council, or creed, but are authoritative simply because they are the word of God. Anyone agree with that? So, so far we're saying, this guy's on our team, right? You know, the scriptures as they embody the very speaking of God, partaking of his authority, his power. We are right in line. I look at this and I say, fantastic. And yet I was watching him just the other day, and he said, well, I think that Muslims worship the same God and can be saved because they believe in Jesus. You know, Muslims do believe in Jesus. But I'm here to tell, you, to tell you, it's not the same Jesus. Tony Campolo has one of the best sermons on, Easter, on Resurrection Sunday I've ever heard. How many of you have ever heard? It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. That was him. Great message. He wrote this. 
when we listen to the Muslim mystics as they talk about Jesus and their love for Jesus, I must say it's a lot closer to New Testament Christianity than a lot of Christians. Wait a second. I don't think he's hearing it right. I'm not saying he's not a believer. I'm, I'm saying we have to be very careful. What's the application? Application today is very simple. Don't be duped. Spot the counterfeits by, by comparing them to the genuine. How do you spot a counterfeit? You compare it to the genuine. I'm just going to go through this real quickly. When you look at the difference between the kingdom of God, it's very, very the kingdom of God, or, or, or the, the counterfeit pr- promises peace, produces violence. But the kingdom of God says, love your enemies. The counterfeit promotes pride. The kingdom of God promotes humility. The counterfeit is inconsistent with Scripture. That's why there's abominations, right? They, they break the Levitical code and everything. You know, but the truth is based on Scripture. The, the counterfeit is, is going to in, in, permit the indulgence of the flesh. But for, for the one who follows the kingdom of God, we are in the process of overcoming the flesh. Very different. And I would also submit to you that Jesus is different. The Jesus, Islamic Jesus and the Jesus of, of the Bible. The, the Jesus of the Bible is 100% God and 100% man. The Jesus of the Quran and the Sunnah of Muhammad is just a man. The Jesus of the Bible died and rose again. The Jesus of the, of the Sunnah of his, of of Mohammed never died. He just ascended into heaven like Elijah. The Jesus of the Bible then, because he did that, he atoned for our sin. Nope, not in the Jesus of the Quran. Jesus of the Bible is sitting in heaven with, right now. According to the Jesus of the Quran, he's going to return to earth. He's going to marry. He's going to have kids. He's going to die. And then he's going to be buried next to Mohammed. Are we talking about the same Jesus? No. I don't think so. In fact, it got me interested, and in the next five to seven minutes, I just want to share what the, what the Muslims say about the end times. Is that all right? I want you to compare. So we're going to take a little time just to apply the, the application today. What's, what's their eschatology compared to our eschatology, the doctrine of last times? They say that there are three signs, and they come with three persons that mark the three stages of the end times. The first one is the coming of a man called Mahdi, right? The Mahdi. He's the 12th imam, oftentimes. He's, he's going to be a descendant of Muhammad. He's going to be considered a greater prophet than Jesus. He is going to establish global Islam. He will come to earth, to, this is according to their, their doctrines, he will come to earth to slaughter all who do not convert to Islam. This is their words. Does it, by the way, does this sound familiar? Convert or be killed? Who did that? In our Bible. The Antichrist, someone said. He's going to establish his rule on the Temple Mount of Jerusalem. And I'm not lying. This is what their books say. He will make a peace agreement with the Jews for seven years to give them time to convert to Islam. But at some point during that seven years, he is going to, uh, to say enough is enough and he is going to start killing anyone who disagrees. That's right in line with what the Bible says about the Antichrist. I'll take it one step further. It says he's going to come in on a white horse. And to make sure that you, that you, you, you understand who this is, he says that he is the fulfillment 
of Revelation 6, 1 and 2. Not lying. They say, they quote the Bible and say, he is the fulfillment of Revelation 6, 1 and 2. So we go there. Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, come and see. And I looked and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. Remember who that was? That's the Antichrist. Think about that for a second. This Mahdi, their Redeemer, is our Antichrist. The Islamic Redeemer is the Bible's Antichrist. Is this a little difference that we should just overlook so that we can have a sense of unity with them? I don't think so. Uh, the, the second person that comes in on the scene is the Islamic Jesus. It's one thing we have in common, right? We both believe in Jesus. After the appearance of the Mahdi, they believe that Jesus will come and correct the false doctrines of the Jews and the Christians who, erroneous, who erroneously thought he was God. He will lead Christians and Jews to be converted to Islam, and he will this is their own words, quote, shatter crosses in a great persecution of the church. That's what they say Jesus is going to do. And you follow it, line by line. Who is this? He does everything that, according to Scripture, is done by the false prophet. Jesus is reduced to a false prophet. The third person that comes on the scene is what they call the Dajjal. That's their antichrist. And listen to this. They say the, the Dajjal will enter Jerusalem on a mule. Who's done that before? Jesus. He will claim to be Jesus, the Son of God. He will claim to be deity, and he will attempt to stop the Mahdi and the Islamic Jesus, but the Islamic Jesus will slaughter him. You know what's interesting? All of this matches perfectly with what we say is going to happen, except for everything's reversed. Everything is exactly reversed. But all of the events, are everything's fine, except for who wins. Right? Everything else is the same. So who is this? This is the real Jesus they're talking about. So bottom line, think about this. Our Jesus is the Antichrist of Islam. Our Antichrist is their Redeemer. Islam is the complete and perfect counterfeit of Christianity. And you know what? This has been going on from the beginning. From Old Testament times when they said we need to create our own version of the Pentateuch so that we're the blessed line and that they are not. We need to come up with our own scriptures. Oh, Moses, you, you can produce miracles that show that you come on, on behalf of a God of heavens? Well, the, the, the magicians, we can, come, we, can, we can come up with our own counterfeit miracles as well. It has been, Satan has been in the business of counterfeiting forever. And you know what? How do we know that we're not the ones, how do we know we're not the counterfeits? How do we know that the Muslims aren't right and that we are wrong? I'll, I'll give you a clue. A copy always comes after the original. When did John write Revelation? In the early 100s A.D.? When was Muhammad born? 570 A.D. Which one's a copy of which? I'll tell you exactly which one's a copy. It's the Quran and the Sunnas and the Injils and all of their holy writings came much after. Just as 
The Samaritan Pentateuch came hundreds of years after the Pentateuch. It's a, cop, it's a, a copy and a bad one at that. Well, you know, maybe when I think of, of application and invitation, maybe you've been duped. Um, maybe not by Islam yet, but you've been duped into believing that Christianity is a way into heaven, but that there are multiple ways. Uh, uh, maybe you've been duped into thinking that religions should be focusing more on what they have in common instead of what they, they disagree upon. But I ask you this, if someone owed you $100 and they wanted to pay you with this bill, how many of you would say, I'm going to focus on all the things that are in common between my $100 bills and this, this $100 bill? Or would you spot the difference and say that difference makes all the difference? Right? It makes all the difference, right? And, and, and I'm telling you, that I, I say this, not in a spirit of division, and I, think, I agree that Christians shouldn't separate over the, the small things and, and some of these, these little things. And, but I'll tell you this, when we're talking about the difference between life and death, between heaven and hell, between God and Satan, between the kingdom of God and Satan's counterfeit order, this is a major difference. And I think John was... was was sharing all this, and I think God gave John this opportunity so that he could prepare us for that day. And I know sometimes, our, sometimes as we preach, as I preach, the, the, the application is go do this. Today, God's saying, here's how to think, and here's how to reason, and here's how to understand things. And we have to understand the big picture and recognize God has already set up the real deal. Don't start falling for counterfeits. Don't, don't start falling for those. How do you know the difference? You compare it to the real deal. And you get to know this book. And you study it. And you, you get in there and you understand it. So that when the fake comes along, you say, oh, I can spot that fake. That is, that is a trap. That is intended to pull me away from the truth. Because the truth is, there's one Jesus. And it's the Jesus of the Bible. He is the only name, as Paul wrote it, nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Amen. So today I would encourage you, if, there, if there's anyone in here today who's been saved in your mind by some other religion or by any other philosophy, or if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, today is the day to make that happen. I would invite you to come and talk to me after the service. I would love to show, show you from, from Scripture how you can know for sure that you have eternal life. For the rest of you as a believer, I'll tell you that don't be, don't listen to the Catholics or to the Mormons or to the Muslims or anyone else who tries to deceive you with anything besides the real gospel. In fact, we'll talk about this next week, but one, two things that never change. God never changes and the gospel never changes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that, that you gave us these warnings. Lord, the fact that Jesus said that we have to be so cautious that if it were possible for even the elect would be duped by this, this final and false religion. Lord, I pray that we would be so ready for that day. I pray that we would be able to recognize and spot a counterfeit for what it is. Lord, I, I don't believe that there are too many in this room that would, 
would believe in Islam today. But I do believe that Satan is crafty. And if we're not ready, what Jesus said is true. We could be duped if we're not prepared. Lord, I pray that, that first, if there's anyone in here who is, is not part of the body of Christ, who has not accepted your Son as their Lord and Savior, I pray, Lord, that they would accept the Jesus, not the Islamic Jesus, but the Jesus of the Bible today. Lord, don't let them leave this room without coming and talking to me or to someone in the church who could share with them the truth of God's Word. Lord, for the believers in this room, I pray, Lord, that we would, we would not just become lazy in our in our thinking, but that we would study your word. We would know the genuine so well that we would spot these false ideas when they creep into the church. Lord, as I look at the churches around us, there are so many churches that are starting to allow some of these false ideas that we read about in Revelation, and they're starting to incorporate them so that they will not be ready on that day. Lord, may this not be one of those churches. Lord, I pray that that we would take persecution for what it is before we give up the truth of, of the, the gospel. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.